Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. This is Liz Lenevy, and today I am joined by Megan Crow, Elizabeth McNulty, Mary Simon, and Amy Gunn. Now, we are all virtual, so I want to apologize ahead of time if you hear any weird sounds in the background. Please excuse any children, cats, or construction. But at the time that we're recording this, St. Louis is currently buried under a couple inches of snow, and so we thought it would be best to record virtually so we could still bring you a new episode, but also stay safe and warm at home. And today we are actually talking about sovereign immunity. It's one of those topics that I think if you're a newer, younger lawyer, this could be a really informative episode for you, just explaining what sovereign immunity is within the context of personal injury and wrongful death litigation. That's our goal today. So just sort of give a quick little lesson on this pretty important topic. Obviously, sovereign immunity is very state-specific, and so we're going to be focusing on Missouri. If you're practicing outside of Missouri, you should look up your state's individual laws. But for purposes of today, we're going to be talking a lot about Missouri statute and how sovereign immunity is has been developed under our state law. I do quickly want to cite my sources because this was kind of a hairy topic, and so I did a little bit of research, and so I want to give credit first to the Missouri Practice Series on Personal Injury and the Torts Handbook, as well as a 2015 article by Shane Blank in the Journal of the Missouri Bar titled The King's Court Demystifying Missouri's Governmental Immunity Doctrines. Both the Missouri Practice Series as well as Shane's article I found really informative. And I actually want to start the topic by just reading a little bit from Shane's article. So it starts, sovereign immunity rests principally upon the tenuous ground that the king could do no wrong, a rare surviving vestige of English monarchical power. That rationale has not evolved much over the years. Today, it is said that sovereign immunity exists to accord states the dignity that is consistent with their status as sovereign entities. Whether a matter of state dignity or monarchical right, the more pragmatic reason for sovereign immunity's continued existence is that it limits the government's exposure to a specified category of tort claims, thereby indirectly protecting the taxpayer from actions seeking to dip into the government's deep pockets. In Missouri, the common law rule of sovereign immunity was first recognized in 1821. In 1977, the Supreme Court of Missouri attempted to abrogate the common law doctrine of sovereign immunity in the case of Jones v. State Highway Commission. The legislator, perhaps recognizing the pragmatic considerations above, responded swiftly by enacting Section 537-600, which states in part that the doctrine of sovereign immunity remains in full force and effect despite the Supreme Court's ruling in Jones. What once was a common law doctrine became a statutory one. Sovereign immunity, as it existed prior to Jones, remains in full effect today, except to the extent waived, abrogated, or modified by statute. So basically, what it's getting at is we can't sue the government for personal injury and wrongful death unless there is a specific exception, and that is codified under the statute. And if you've listened to one of our previous episodes on rule following, it's very important to follow the rules and understand what the statutory provisions allow. And so that for Missouri, again, you're going to go to 537-600. And you can read the entire statute itself if you want. But the basics of it is that there are two specific instances that the government has expressly waived for personal injury lawsuits. One is for injuries directly resulting from the negligent acts or omissions by public employees arising out of the operation of motor vehicles 
or motorized vehicles within the course of their employment. If you get into a car accident with someone driving a government vehicle. Or number two, injuries caused by the condition of a public entity's property if the plaintiff establishes that the property was in dangerous condition at the time of the injury, that the injury directly resulted from the dangerous condition, that the dangerous condition created a reasonably foreseeable risk of harm of the kind of injury which was occurred, and that either a negligent or wrongful act or omission of an employee of the public entity within the course of his employment created the dangerous condition or a public entity had actual or constructive notice of the dangerous condition in sufficient time prior to the injury to have taken measures to protect against the dangerous condition. So this is a premises case, essentially, but there are several elements that I think are more specific than just sort of a a general premises case you might experience against a business or, or another landowner. It's also important to consider that sovereign immunity itself is different than like a government or official immunity. The actual statutes, 537-600, it doesn't protect government employees specifically. It protects governmental entities. Protecting employees like under an official immunity, that's a different topic for a different day. Additionally, something to consider if you are the plaintiff's attorney is that sovereign immunity is not an affirmative defense and that you as the plaintiff actually bear the burden of pleading your facts with enough specificity to give rise to the exception to sovereign immunity when you're suing a public entity. And so sovereign immunity cases, I feel like they're kind of rare or cases where we're dealing with sovereign immunity, cases where we're dealing with suing some sort of government entity, at least in my practice, it doesn't seem to come up as often, but it does happen occasionally. And it's really important to make sure that we are operating within the rules and the statute. And so I want to throw it out to the group about who may have some experience with a case where sovereign immunity was an issue. What did you learn? What were some of the pitfalls of those cases? So I have had a number of cases over the years where this has come up, and sometimes it's not what you would expect. For example, I do a lot of medical malpractice, as our listeners know. And a number of years ago, actually early in my practice, I investigated a case involving alleged malpractice at the University of Missouri Health System, the University of Missouri Hospital. And I just assumed it was like any other hospital around that it would be able to be sued and we would sue the hospital for the negligence of its employees and agents and the doctors, maybe add the doctors, depending on the situation. And as I dove in, I recognized kind of to my surprise that you cannot sue the University of Missouri hospital. And it's because the University of Missouri, because it's a public entity and it is considered part of the sovereign immunity covered under 537.600, which is really surprising. Now, of course, we didn't give up. I just really looked at a lot of the other cases that have been filed to figure out what to do. And it's, I think, quite unfortunate for the folks that work there because you just have to sue everybody individually, the nurses individually, the physicians individually, whoever you believe is responsible for the negligence. There is no corporate entity to sue. So that was something I I learned along the way. The other thing that comes up, and in fact, Liz, you and I have a case in the early stages right now involving a police officer who was on a run to go investigate a motor vehicle accident. And as he was going to that motor vehicle accident, caused a motor vehicle accident involving our clients. And so we are investigating that and we will be able to sue the city. The police department is a city department. 
So we'll be able to sue that as an exception, Liz, one that you just told us about involving the operation of motor vehicles of the employees. And we're also going to sue the officer directly because he's not covered under, as Liz said, 537-600. And then I do remember a case also against the city of St. Louis years ago involving a condition of property. So you might think, what could that be? Well, think about sidewalks, manhole covers, anything that the city controls that is in a dangerous condition that causes harm, the city is on the hook for, or it could be on the hook for, and is an exception to sovereign immunity. Now, you got to be careful to not only look at the statutes that apply but also any municipal regulations or ordinances that apply. Because if I recall correctly, the city of St. Louis has a 90-day requirement where you have to alert the city or put the city on notice as to the potential claim. You don't have to file the suit within that time frame, but you do have to put the city of St. Louis on notice to that potential claim or it's waived. So that is... If you're looking for cases against the city, either for property or for use of or operation of motor vehicles, you've got to be aware of that. And I would say you really need to check any municipality, any city that you're looking to sue for similar regulations, for similar ordinances. Just you can't get caught short on that. It's bad news. So those are a few situations that I've come across over my years where You really do have to look and plead the statute and plead an exception to the statute. And Liz, you're right. It's not an affirmative defense. It is our burden at the outset to prove that the cause of action falls under an exception. And, you know, you usually have to litigate that at the outset because you never know. I mean, we're saying that this was a dangerous condition of the property. You really have to do a good job pleading. You can't just say my client tripped over you know, a manhole, you have to do a good job pleading what that dangerous condition is. It sounds scary. And every time I have a situation where a potential defendant is a city or the state or any other potentially sovereign immunity defendant, I go back to the statute. I say, we got to understand this. So Amy, you mentioned municipalities and municipalities are, you know, very specific bodies within the overall structure of our local governments. And something to consider in Missouri in particular is that unlike state entities, so the University of Missouri is a state entity, but when we're talking about municipalities like the city of St. Louis, municipalities, unlike state entities, which do receive full sovereign immunities, municipalities are entitled to sovereign immunity only when engaged in governmental functions, but not proprietary functions. So what does that mean? Well, a governmental function is that which is performed for the common good of all, as opposed to a proprietary function, which is performed for the special benefit or profit of the municipality acting as the entity. So an example of a governmental function may be the operation of a city hospital. That is a government function that serves to safeguard and preserve public health. It's for the greater good of the citizens. Similarly, a municipal fire department is for the benefit of the general public. Therefore, any act or omission of the municipality associated with the performance of this service is a governmental function for which the municipality ordinarily may not be held liable. So that's, you know, think about a city hospital, think about the fire department. These are government functions. And so does anyone have any stories about their experiences with litigation involving municipalities? 
Yeah, so I have a little bit of experience in dealing with municipalities as defendants, specifically police departments, and also the city that controls the police department. I have one case where the defendant police officer caused an auto accident. He was actually found to be acting outside the scope, essentially, of his police duties. And in that case, we were able to hold the municipality and the police department liable under vicarious liability. In another case, we had a little bit of a different outcome because the police officer in that case was found to be acting within his official duties in his capacity as a police department. And in that case, sovereign immunity kicked in and we were not able to hold the police department or municipality responsible. The issue of sovereign immunity, as we've been discussing it, obviously, it's really easy to take a deep dive into the weeds of the statute because you have to. And it's important to acknowledge here that from the get-go, the very beginning, the inception of the case, from the first phone call we get, we're thinking about things like sovereign immunity because it's, who are we going to sue? I know the first time I encountered this, it's because... I initially reviewed a case and thought to myself, well, you know, there's huge damages here and clearly something went wrong, but it seems like five different people potentially did something wrong here. And I don't know who it is. So I had to have a conversation with my client from the get-go that I'm going to have to do some research to figure out exactly who we can actually sue. It's who can be a defendant and who can't be a defendant sometimes in these cases. And it's really frustrating for a lot of plaintiff's attorneys, I'm sure, I know it has been for me, to figure out in a case early on that there is this bar of sovereign immunity. So looking at the statute and finding exceptions to it, Liz, you said, you know, it's not something that's an affirmative defense, it's on us to plead it and get out ahead of it. You got to know exactly what you're getting into from the inception of your case. I handled a case against a county The county was named as one of the defendants, and it fell, Liz, within one of the exceptions that you talked about, the dangerous condition to property. There were a handful of defendants because it had to do with construction and ownership and control and who was responsible for this particular area. One of the defendants kept trying to include or put it off on another defendant who would have sovereign immunity over this particular area, for obvious reasons, speaking in very broad terms here. But we had to brief the issue, and it required required additional discovery and the court allowed us to do additional discovery. We actually had to get, you know, historical paperwork about this specific location that we were dealing with to figure out deeds of the land and transfers of land. And so it it's really important to have this stuff figured out ahead of time. You know, to one point I am happy that it's something that we have it's required of us at the beginning. We can't move forward because you don't want to get into a case and then realize, oh, this person or this entity can't be sued. So that's really important. And I remember that condition of property, that exception you talked about, played a huge role in our case. And it served as the cornerstone for me to be able to push the case forward for my client. The only other case I can think of that I got into sovereign immunity or this issue of sovereign immunity, it was a med mal case that had both aspects. It had you know, our traditional, as we talk about it, a doctor in a hospital, not subject to any sort of immunity, and another entity that happened to be a government agency. So we had to go through the FTCA claims process. It required a ton of forms, a lot of deadlines. It's almost a little bit easier to navigate in terms of what the next step is because it's so rule-oriented from step to step. 
you just have to really stay on top of it. But I remember that side of our claim, that aspect of the claim that we had to move forward, it was a lot more about being your own best advocate and moving things forward than anything else. But that one was a lot cleaner because it was through FTCA and everything flowed really well in that one versus my county case that dealt with land and an exception because I felt like at every hearing we were dealing with a side argument by the other attorney about, well, and it's all subject to sovereign immunity. It'll all be thrown out anyway. And, you know, you know, you have to be prepared at every single hearing to remind the court why you're actually still, the case is still ongoing because we already dealt with that issue at the beginning. But it is something that is, I found to be super significant and important to have a general understanding of at the very least as you're starting to practice being a trial attorney because it matters of who you're even able to sue and whether or not you can actually pursue the case. And Mary, something that you touched on briefly, and I think that is worth repeating, is how frustrating this can be for potential clients that aren't familiar with sovereign immunity when they've been wronged by some kind of governmental actor or public entity and are left without any kind of redress. And it's something that does need to be researched at the outset of any kind of intake call. I remember I was working on an intake doing some research for a minor client who got beat up pretty badly on a school bus, but it was a public school bus. And obviously, we didn't want to sue the minor. We were looking to sue the school and the driver because they weren't monitoring the kid who was just getting beat up. It was on video, but it was a public entity and there was nothing we could do about it. And you have to explain to this child's parents on how there isn't any kind of avenue to get them any kind of recovery. or, And I think that that's just a really difficult conversation to have with the client, but it's best to have that at the outset instead of you know getting their hopes up. It's really frustrating, and obviously it's something that's been around for a really long time, and I'd say, uh, like they say, it's good to be king. So, <laughs> Another thing you mentioned, Mary, that I think is worth spending just a little bit of time on, really, I think this is a topic that could probably use its entire own episode, but the FTCA. So for anyone who may not be familiar, the FTCA stands for the Federal Torts Claims Act. And so that is actually federal legislation. And so it comes into play when you are in a position where your client has been injured by some sort of federal entity. This most often comes up in cases in our office when we have an individual who was a patient at some sort of federally funded clinic. Those are in lots of different parts of the state. For us in particular, I've noticed that they are often in more rural parts of the state so that people who may not have access to a large hospital system or something, they can still get access to healthcare. But if they are the victim of malpractice, there needs to be some sort of recourse. And so the federal government has stepped in and created this act that has very, very tight and stringent rules on how you can proceed on these types of cases. And so if you are in a position where you might need to sue the federal government for a personal injury or a wrongful death claim, you know, whether it's one of these federally funded health clinics, if you get hit by a post office truck that falls under the FTCA, you need to look up that specific statute and make sure that you are following all of the rules. But I think you have to file a very specific form and there's a lot that has to go into that form and what you have to attached to the form. And so you need to make sure that you're on top of that. A couple of things, Liz, on the FTCA claims, it's Form 95. That's the form that has to be filed. And importantly, you must file on that form the full extent of your damages. In other words, if you file on that form 
that the claim is worth $25,000. Because at this point, you don't know, you're just trying to get the form in. You are stuck with that. Once you have filled that out and claimed that amount, you are stuck with it. So my advice is claim $3 million, claim $10 million. It won't hurt you to claim too much, but it will hurt you to underestimate the value of your case. The other thing about the FTCA that you have to be aware of is the statute of limitation is not told if you have a minor client. Normally, we're used to, if we represent babies and birth injury cases or other cases that happen during the childhood, we have until their 20th birthday. That's not the case. The statute of limitation for a Federal Tort Claim Act is two years. Many a practitioner, unfortunately, has gotten caught short on that because it is not told. So be very careful about that. One last thing that I just quickly wanted to touch on, because it was a specific issue that Amy, you and I ran into a couple years ago, and it was another federal statute, and it's actually FERPA, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. And this was within the context, actually, of another state institution that had, and I don't want to get too much into the details, but had we were alleging caused harm to a minor child. And so we were researching whether or not FERPA would allow for any type of cause of action that would allow us to get past the sovereign immunity issue, because this was not a case where one of the two clear exceptions could be applied. And what we found was that under FERPA, there really is not an individual cause of action that you can pursue. It is really just sort of a reporting tool for families and students in cases where a government school or any type of educational institution may be receiving federal funding that basically allows the federal government to investigate these types of claims and gives the school an opportunity to change whatever policy or practice that they had that allowed it to happen. But I just quickly wanted to mention that FERPA is not a way to get around sovereign immunity. And with that, I think that we have had a great discussion about sovereign immunity. I know this is certainly a topic that I wish I had understood better when I was first practicing. And so my hope is that any younger practitioners who may be listening to this episode have learned something and can take that going forward, working on future cases. Thank you so much for everyone who joined us on today's episode. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, you can reach out to us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday. Thanks so much. Bye. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.